So for reference, 50 million metric tons is 110 billion pounds. <laughs> or as the Microsoft calculator wanted to tell me, oh, no. 55,556 whales. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a podcast where we tell you about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. Not super long ago today. Yeah, same here. All right. Um, I'm in 1910. I am in 1951. Yes. <laughs> I like how it was a question. Yes. Um, do you have any updates or anything? Uh, we went to the Renaissance Fair this weekend, and it was awesome. Yes, that was a lot of fun. I meant in relation to our podcast. Oh. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, last week, I talked about... King Wenceslas, which I then remembered, like, belatedly, that I most Americans would probably recognize Wenceslas, not Wenceslas, but ah. whatever. Um, Still no bells for me. Nope. Well, you're 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 dumbbell, so. Mm-hmm. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and we, there, you had a question about Henry the First, who was known as the Fowler. Yeah. Um, Birdman. Yes, Birdman, and we tried to figure out where he got his name from. He was an avid hunter, and he got the epithet the Fowler because he was allegedly fixing his birding nets when the messengers arrived to tell him that he had been selected as the next king. Oh. So it was related to birding, but he wasn't like a bird man. So there's that. Nice. All right. So my topic, on October 1st, 1910, the Los Angeles Times building in Los Angeles, California, was bombed with dynamite by a union member belonging to the International Association of Bridge and Structural Iron Workers. Oh. Yep. The explosion started a fire, which killed 21 newspaper employees and injured 100 more. It's a bunch. Yep. Um, And it was termed the crime of the century by the Times. Um, So to better understand why this happened, we have to look a little closer at the events leading up to the bombing. The Iron Workers Union was formed in 1896, and work was seasonal, and most iron workers were unskilled, so the union remained weak, and much of the industry remained unorganized until 1902. That year, the union won a strike against the American Bridge Company, which was a subsidiary of the newly formed U.S. Steel Corporation. American Bridge was the dominant company in the iron industry, and within a year, the Iron Workers Union had not only organized almost every U.S. iron manufacturer, but had also won signed contracts, including union shop clauses. Um, it became affiliated with the American Federation of Labor shortly after its formation, and was one of the charter members of the AFL's Building Trades de- Building Trade Department, which was created in 1908. So, a little bit of background on the union there. Um, A number of employees tried to destroy the craft unions that made up the AFL in the first decade of the 20th century uh, by insisting on maintaining an open shop, which meant hiring without reference to union membership. And for craft unions like the iron workers, who maintained union wages and working conditions by controlling the supply of labor, um, that open shop policy meant that the employer was free to set any wage standards it chose and to discriminate against union members in hiring. So it was not great for 
were the like blossoming union right. people. Um, in uh, 1903, officials of the U.S. Steel and the American Bridge Company, um, which I'm going to, it's colloquially known as Ambridge, um, founded the National Erectors Association, or the NEA, which is a coalition of steel and iron industry employers. Don't you go to the NEA conference every year? <laughs> yes, but that's New England Archivist. <laughs> this I didn't is... know you were a steel worker. <laughs> There's a lot you don't know about me. Uh-oh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, am like the opposite of a steel worker pretty much. <laughs> um, so the primary goal of the NEA was to promote the open shop which was bad for unions, and to assist employers in breaking the unions in their industries. Employers used labor spies, agent provocateurs, private detective agencies, and strike breakers to engage in a campaign of union busting. Um, So the local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies generally cooperated in this campaign, which often used violence against union members. Hard-pressed by the open shop campaign, the ironworkers reacted by electing the militant Frank M. Ryan as the president and John J. McNamara, known as J.J., as the secretary-treasurer in 1905. So they took a very militant line against these very violent union breakers. Mm. Yeah. So I clearly, since we started by talking about a bombing, violence ensues. True. (laughs) Um, So that year after the union's collective bargaining agreement with Ambridge had expired, Ambridge and the other members of the NEA began refusing to hire union members and hired labor spies to infiltrate the union. Sneaky, sneaky. Um, When the ironworkers struck in response in 1906, the employers obtained injunctions and local ordinances that barred picketing or limited it to an ineffective display. So basically, they could strike, but they couldn't put up a, like, visible presence, Mm -hmm. which kind of defeats the purpose of it. So, however, the open shop movement was a significant success, and by 1910, the U.S. Steel had almost succeeded in driving all unions out of its plants. Unions and other iron manufacturing companies also started vanishing, and only the iron workers held on, um, though the strike in Ambridge continued. So, union officials used violence to counter the setbacks they had suffered. Beginning in late 1906, national and local officials of the iron workers launched a dynamiting campaign. Between 1906 in 1911, the ironworkers blew up 110 ironworks. Whoa. Yeah. Though only a few thousand dollars in damages was done, and only the LA Times bombing resulted in a loss of life. That's good, so, at least. So generally speaking, it wasn't super violent, but st- was, I mean, still bombs, but like, yeah. It was they, very destructive. They, t- they tried to minimize, I think, the like real violence of it, because um, they're trying to prove a point, not kill people, but... We'll get to that. Um, So Los Angeles employers had been successfully resisting unionization for nearly half a century. Harris Gray Otis, who was publisher of the L.A. Times, was um, extremely anti-union. Without unions to keep wages high, open shop employers in L.A. were able to undermine the wage standards set in heavily unionized San Francisco. So unions in San Francisco feared that employers in their city would also soon begin pressing for wage cuts and start open shop drive of their own. The only solution they saw was to reunionize L.A. So the San Francisco unions relied heavily on the iron workers, one of the few strong unions that remained in um, Los Angeles. Unionization campaign began in the spring of 1910. On June 1st, 1910, 1,500 iron workers struck iron manufacturers in the city to win a 50 cents an hour minimum wage, which would be the equivalent of 
about $13.26 in 2018. Okay. Um, as well as winning overtime pay. So they weren't being paid for overtime before. Me um, neither. Yeah. You know, um, I'm salary, so I don't get them. Mm-hmm. Um, on July 15th, the Los Angeles City Council unanimously enacted an ordinance banning picketing and speaking in public streets in a loud or unusual tone. And that carried a penalty of 50 days in jail or a $100 fine or both. Um, Most union members refused to obey the injunctions or ordinance, and 472 strikers were arrested. That was a pretty substantial... That's like a third of the people who struck that, because it was 1,500. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a third of your strike force, so whoops. Um, The strike, however, proved effective, and by September, 13 new unions had formed, increasing union membership in the city by almost 60%. Nice. Good job. One for the workers. Um, so on June 3rd, 1910, two days after the start of the strike, Eugene Clancy, the top ironworker union official on the West Coast, wrote to J.J. McNamara, Now, Joe, what I want here is Hawken. And by that, he was referring to someone named Herbert Hawken, who was the union, union official who was in charge of the dynamite bombings. However, Hawken had been caught taking money earmarked for bombing jobs, and McNamara no longer trusted him. And uh, rightfully so, since Hawken was the NEA's inside spy. Ah, there you go. Yep, there we go. Um, He then asked another dynamiter, Jack Barry of St. Louis, to go to California, but Barry turned down the job when he learned of the targets. Um, I don't know why, but apparently he decided... Had it wasn't worth then. it. Yeah. <laughs> so J.J. McNamara finally sent his younger brother, James B. McNamara, to California on the bombing mission. On the evening of September 30th, 1910, J.B. Na- McNamara left a suitcase full of dynamite in the narrow alley between the Times Building and the Times Annex, which was known as Ink Alley, near barrels of flammable printer's ink. The dynamite had a detonator connected to a mechanical wind-up clock set to close an electric battery circuit at 1 a.m. and set off the explosion. He then left similar bombs, also set to explode at 1 a.m., next to the home of Times publisher um, Harris Gray Otis, uh, Harrison Gray Otis, and the home of Felix Zehenlander, who was secretary of the Merchant and Manufacturers Association, which was heavily working towards anti u mm-hmm. um, So McNamara then boarded a train to San Francisco and was out of town when the Times building bomb went off. There, uh, So this was an escalation of the bombing campaign. Previously, only non-union workplaces had been targeted and had generally not caused a significant amount of damage. Now the Iron Workers Union was expanding to uh, the targets to the homes of anti-union leaders and a newspaper noted for its anti union editorial policy so they're very much escalating um the violence with which they're doing and part of that potentially could be attributed to the fact that it's um jb mcnamara not the um hawken who was in charge of the dynamiting originally yeah my guess is that maybe jb wasn't you know as fully aware of what the kind of unwritten policy had been um so who who knows if that played a factor or not. So at 1.07 a.m. on October 1st, 1910, the bomb went off in the alley outside the three-story L.A. Times building, which is located at First Street and Broadway in L.A. The 16 sticks of dynamite in the suitcase bomb were not enough to destroy the whole building, which was an 1886 brick and granite edifice known as The Fortress, but the bomb ignited natural gas piped into the building. So 
Oops. Um, the Times was a morning paper, so there were employees working during the late night and early morning hours. And unfortunately, the bombers were unaware that a number of Times employees were working overnight to produce an extra edition for the next afternoon, um, which was supposed to carry the results of the Vanderbilt Cup auto race. The bomb collapsed the side of the building, and the ensuing fire destroyed the Times building and a second structure next door that housed the pa- uh, paper's printing press. Of the 115 people still in the building, it is believed 21 died and most of them from the fire, not the actual explosion. Yep. The exact number of deaths is uncertain, however, but the remains of 20 were identified, and parts of either one or two additional bodies were pulled from the rubble. Eee. So it's either 21 or 22. Um, a night editor and a telegraph operator were among the dead, and dozens of others were wounded and maimed. Um, a report published in the Times two days after the incident described the scene as an awful pit of death. Um, and the publisher Otis criti- criticized unions as anarchic scum, cowardly murderers, leeches upon honest labor, and midnight assassins. As for the other two bombs that were left at the houses of Otis and um, Zehenlander, neither went off. Zehenlander's maid found the bomb package behind a bush beneath a window and called the police, who were able to disarm the bomb. The spring of the mechanical clock had apparently been wound too tightly, which slowed the clock and prevented the bomb from exploding on time. The police were also able to gather valuable clues as to the bomber's method and place the, uh, trace the dynamite back to its source. So hearing of the bomb at the Zehenlander home, the caretaker of the Otis house searched along the ha- along the house and found a leather suitcase that was also behind some bushes under a window. The police were called and carried the suitcase away from the house and out into the open, but while they were cutting open the suitcase, the alarm went off inside, the su- inside and the police were able to run to safety before the bomb exploded. Um, investigators speculated that, like the Zehanlander bomb, the clock mechanism at the Otis house had been wound too tightly, delaying the explosion. So the Iron Workers Strike Committee in Los Angeles and Samuel Gompers, who was president of the um, American Federation of Labor, or the AFL. This is a great name. I know, it's wonderful, isn't it? I also like that it's the American Federation of Labor, or the AFL, or the American Football League. <laughs> Clearly, I am not in the sports. Um, so, um, he immediately condemned the bombing and claimed no labor union or individual could have been responsible. And the Times and law enforcement authorities announced that the perpetrators would be caught immediately, but weeks passed and no arrests were made, even with a pretty hefty reward offered. I think I saw like 75000 or something like that, which in that time was a fairly considerable amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so several months passed, and it seemed as though the bombers had escaped scot-free. The Iron Workers Union decided it was time for more bombings in L.A. and sent a man named Ordie McManigle with a lift, list of five bombing targets, which included the Times Auxiliary Printing Plant, the Llewellyn Ironworks, the Baker Ironworks, and two non-union construction sites, the Los Angeles County um, Hall of Records and the Hotel Alexandria. So those are two pretty frequented spots, um, so it probably would have been a much more significant um, damage. Um, but he he set off a dynamite bomb at the um, Llewellyn Ironworks, partially wrecking the plant with a damage costing 25000 But he found two of the other sites too closely guarded and never visited the remaining two. J.J. Hmm. McNamara was angry that only one of the sites was bombed, but Mc, McManigal told him that security was just too tight. So private detective William J. Burns had been investigating the nationwide wave of iron manufacturing plant bombings for the past four years um, and took this job as part of his investigation. So remember Herbert Hawkins from earlier, the spy? Yeah. He told Burns that Ordy McManigal had been handling the iron workers bombing campaign on orders from Union President Ryan and the Secretary Treasurer McNamara. Uh-oh. Um, 
McManigal and McNamara were borderline alcoholics who liked to drink and hunt at the same time. And that's a really bad idea just to, you know, PSA, don't drink and hunt. Um, so Burns infiltrated one of their late winter hunting trips with a spy. And during the trip, J.B. McNamara posted of having blown up the Times building. So the undercover private eye also surreptitiously took a photo of him. And Burns then showed the photo to a hotel clerk in L.A. who recognized him as um, J.B. Bryce, who had checked in the day before the bombing and then hurriedly checked out the next morning. Um, so Burns' investigation was successful, and on April 14th, 1911, McManigal and James B. McNamara were arrested. They, uh, dynamite, blasting caps, and alarm clocks were all found in their suitcases. Damning evidence. <laughs> and the men were told they were being arrested for robbing a bank in Chicago. Since they had watertight alibis for that alleged crime, both men agreed to accompany Burns and the police officers back to Chicago. Huh. Um, and, which is completely legal. While police and all um, witnesses are sworn to tell the truth when testifying um, or presenting, like, evidence in court, they're under no such obligation when they're investigating crimes, conducting interrogations, or otherwise performing their duties. I have no idea why I was so surprised by this, but I thought it was just something that, like, they did in TV shows where, you know, they, like, lied to the person to get them to confess. I, I thought that was just a TV show thing. I didn't the, realize that they do that in real life. Yeah, the, the thing <laughs> I'm they, extremely naive, guys. <laughs> but I think the only thing that police aren't allowed to lie about is that they are poli- if they're at. Uh, probably makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, maybe, because, like, pe- police go undercover, and I'm sure if someone, while you're undercover, was like, are you a cop? You'd be like, no, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I don't know why I was so surprised by that. But I guess I didn't know that you could be told you're being arrested for s- something not, like, a lie. For some reason, I, I guess I thought when they arrest you, they have to tell you what you're actually being arrested for. I didn't realize, like, that. I think when you actually get charged, <laughs> it has to be okay. a true crime. Okay, that's probably it. Well, anyway, they were dumb and fell for it and went. Um, <laughs> Dummies. Yeah, right? Um, in Chicago, um, McManigal and McNamara were not taken into a police station, but to the private home of Chicago Police Sergeant William Reed and held from April 13th until April 20th, which that is... Probably illegal. <clears throat> Burns, Seven days. But not in a police station. Oh, In yeah. someone's home. Yeah. <laughs> um, Burns apparently convinced McManigal that he knew everything and that he could save himself by cutting a deal with authorities. McManigal agreed to tell what he knew in order to secure a lighter prison sentence and signed a confession. He said that he had not participated in the Times bombing, but that Jim, J.B. McNamara, had told him all about it and that it was done by um, Jim and two others, Matthew Schmidt and David Kaplan, who were able to evade arrest until 1915. McManigal also said that others involved included Union President Ryan, J.J. McNamara, Herbert Hawkin, the spy from earlier, and other ironworker leaders, just kind of anonymous. (laughs) Um, Burns then wired California officials and secured extradition papers for McManigal and McNamara. He then left for Indianapolis, where the ironworkers had their headquarters and was able to obtain an arrest warrant for J.J. McNamara. So on April 22nd, Burns and two local detectives burst into an executive board meeting of the ironworkers and arrested J.J. McNamara. He was taken before a local circuit court, where the judge refused his request for an attorney and, without legal authority to do so, released McNamara into the custody of Burns. From arrest to departure took 30 minutes. Oh. So that was real fast and highly illegal. Uh-huh. Um, so the same day, McManigal and J.B. McNamara were taken to L.A. by police 
And all three men arrived in Los Angeles on April 26th. So the labor, the national labor movement was outraged by the way the McNamaras had been treated, and labor leaders were quick to defend the brothers' innocence. They contended that Burns had engaged in kidnapping, misrepresentation of his status as a law enforcement officer, and unlawful imprison, imprisonment in his handling of McManigal and J.B. McNamara. You know, where they were taken to someone's house yeah, for seven days? That middle one that they mentioned is what I'm talking about, where you can't lie that you're an officer because you're supposed to be a public servant. Yeah, you're supposed to represent your... Yeah. Um, so... Additionally, the local circuit judge had unlawfully denied um, J.J.'s access to legal representation and had no authority to approve his extradition. Whoops. Both McNamara's had been arrested on the basis of a confession wrung from a third man who they believed had been kidnapped and perhaps coerced into confessing mm. during said kidnapping. Mm. Yeah, so it's getting real fishy. Labor leaders were also convinced the, that the McNamara's innocence by other factors as well. Um, the open shop movement and virulent hostility shown by Otis convinced many that the whole event was a frame-up, and some even accused Otis of uh, performing the bombing himself mm -hmm. um, on his own factory printing place. Or it happens. Insurance yeah. money. Yikes. Um, and a big deal that would break unions, potentially. Um, so organized labor found J.J. McNamara an attractive figure to rally behind, and the president of the AFL threw all of his influence behind them. Was it a pretty late... He said an attractive fear. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, he was just, he was like 34, and he had, like, he was already, like, the secretary of the tri the union, and he, so, like, he was, like, a young, like, attractive person, and that, like, people saw as, like, there's no way he could have done this kind of thing. Ah, okay. Yeah. I yeah. thought I was making a joke about an attractive figure, but oh. apparently it wasn't. No, it was figure. actually, he was an attractive person, and okay. no one thought he could have done it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so actually attractive. Yeah. Yes. Like that Ted Bundy <laughs> mix up that everyone's been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, okay. He was attractive. For the 70s, I guess. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> That's just all I ever hear is attractive. Oh, I think the other thing with Bundy was that he like oozed charisma. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. So they found Ted Bundy. <laughs> yeah. And made him the fall guy for In bombings. 1910, yes. Yep. <clears throat> so with, <laughs> with the AFL president's endorsement, the entire U.S. labor movement supported the McNamaras. They held parades, mass rallies, publicity campaigns, and donations to the McNamaras Defense Fund. The defense for the McNamaras blamed the L.A. Times explosion on an accidental ignition of a gas leak and then the, denied that dynamite was in any way involved. So... Gas thing was accurate because the dynamite set off the gas and that was what made it so effective. Um, but it wasn't just a gas leak. That it's, um, there was a little. So they claimed that all of Burns' evidence had been planted and accused Otis of taking advantage of a tragic accident to imprison union leaders on fabricated charges. So to support the accidental gas explosion theory, the State Federation of Labor of California appointed a committee to travel to L.A. and investigate the matter. The committee included a number of Western Federation of Miners members who would have been very familiar with dynamite, you know, from like blowing all those holes in tunnels and stuff. Um, and the committee reported back that there were no signs of a dynamite explosion at the Times building and that it was solely a gas leak. Hmm. So who knows? Um, they also concluded that Otis knew that it was an accident but had fabricated charges against the McNamaras partly to discredit labor unions 
and partly to evade blame for his negligence that had allowed the gas to ha- accident to happen. In the-, the AFL hired a man named Clarence Darrow, who was a celebrated la- lawyer in union circles, to defend the McNamara's. However, he was in ill health, and although organized labor had um, was convinced of the McNamara's innocence, Darrow realized that the evidence against them was overwhelming um, and that the brothers were almost certainly guilty. The McNamara's were arraigned on February, May 5th. Wow, I jumped a lot of months there um, (laughs) of 1911, where they pled not guilty. McManigal, who had turned state's evidence by this point, was not charged at that time. I think he was charged later, but it was like a really lessened down charge. Yeah. Um, That was almost insignificant. So during their discussions of the trial, Darrow raised the possibility of pressuring the prosecution into accepting a plea bargain. um, In exchange for light prison terms for the McNamara's, the AFL would end its debilitating strike and organizing efforts against the L.A. employers. Otis agreed. Um, The success of the AFL's public opinion campaign had apparently worried him, and the ironworkers' success in maintaining and even widening the strike had weakened the resolve of many of the L.A. business community. The prosecutor, however, refused to sanction any plan which would let the McNamara's go free and demanded that J.B. receive life in prison and J.J. receive at least a shorter term in any plea. Um, It might have worked if Darrow, the defense attorney, hadn't made a clumsy attempt in broad daylight in downtown L.A. to bribe one of the jurors. Surprise, it's a trap. Yeah, wow. And it was like an undercover police officer, and he was promptly arrested. Yep. Good job, dummy. Um, So on December 1st, 1911, the McNamara brothers changed their pleas in open court to guilty. James B. McNamara admitted to murder by having set the bomb that destroyed the L.A. Times building. Um, John J. McNamara, setting foot for the first time in court, admitted to having ordered the bombing of the um, Llewellyn Ironworks on December 25th. Darrow was later criticized for misleading and pressuring the McNamaras into each pleading guilty, as well as deception um, because he raised money for his client's defense by allowing supporters to believe in their innocence. Um, And he raised what... um, the article called a war chest of $200,000 from Ooh. contributions by working men. And he had spent about 100000 of it to mount an expensive effort, all while knowing that the McNamara brothers were actually guilty. So people felt that it was a bit of a deception for him to have raised all that money while knowing they were guilty. Just a wee bit. Yeah, just a little bit. I would have been unhappy. So ultimately, the labor movement in, Lo- in Los Angeles collapsed. Employers refused to honor additional terms of the plea agreement, which required the convening of a meeting of labor union and employers to an end uh, to end the open shop campaign. Instead, employers redoubled their efforts to break the labor le- movement, and the Central Labor Council, Council suffered severe membership losses in the early months of 1912, and the labor movement in the city didn't begin to show signs of growth again until the 1950s. So this... One try. This one event really put back the union movement in um, California significantly. Wow. Yeah. It had a much more surprising impact than I thought when I first looked into this. Yeah, I was what... like, I haven't done like a, like some, like I've done a lot of books and shows and stuff recently. So I was like, let's get back to like some like weird nitty gritty history. And I was like, time's built bombing. Okay, what's this? And then I started looking into it and went, oh, wow, this has a lot more significance than I ever would have thought of. So, yeah, that's a really yeah. big impact. Yeah. It set it back by, like, you know, 40 years. So that's yeah. really impressive. Yeah. Crazy. And, yeah. All right. That was me. All right. So my topic is on October 4th of 1951, Henrietta Lacks, an African-American tobacco farmer, dies of cervical cancer at the age of 31. So... 
I stumbled upon Miss Lax because I was looking for deaths this week to kick off our spooky season for October. And you failed? Yeah, there wasn't too much <laughs> spooky, but I guess looking at deaths rather than like normal historical events is a little sp- I it's a little morbid. I'm not sure about spooky. Spooky. <laughs> Uh, so there were actually a few standout spooky events that I wanted to cover, but my attention was grabbed by the seemingly very plain death among some very notable ones. Okay. Um, the cancer bit also caught my attention is like my family's heavily affected by like childhood cancer in a Mm -hmm. big way. And we aren't the most interesting people, I don't think, but we have a good... (laughs) I know, I'm pretty sure. I beg to differ. Your mom's a hoot. (laughs) Okay, we're we're kind of interesting, but I don't think in like any like massive historical way like would Fair. someone look at our general lives and be people are interesting. Fair. Um, but like we have done some interesting things uh, in and some really good things in the wake of cancer. So I kind of wanted to see what this Henrietta person had to offer. So her story starts in Roanoke, Virginia, on August first of nineteen. 19- she was born to her mother Eliza and her father Johnny and lived. Well, I would hope she was born to her mother. <laughs> And lived with them until she was four years old, when her mother died giving birth to her 10th child. Oh boy, that's a lot of kids. Johnny was a brakeman for the railroad and had no patience for children, so he shipped his 10 children to be divided among his relatives that could take care of them. That's mean. A little bit. Um, So today I also learned what a brakeman was. Oh, okay. And it's pretty self-explanatory. Okay. (laughs) They were the people who would hit the brakes on a train when it needed to stop. It was also one of the deadliest occupations of the time because generally trains had brakes per cart and were operated from the roofs of the trains. Oh, yikes. So these brakemen needed to be on top of trains in whatever weather was happening. Um, so, yeah, I could see why it was yeah. a pretty lethal uh, position. I could see falling off of that thing pretty darn easily. Yeah, yeah. that sounds terrifying. So, so, yeah, that's what brakemen use. Glad we yikes. don't have those anymore. Yeah, right? <laughs> Anyways, Henrietta was shipped off to live with her maternal grandfather, Tommy Lax, in Clover, Virginia. They lived in a cabin that used to be the tobacco plantation where Henrietta's white great-grandfather and also great-uncle... Oh, no. ...owned the rest of her family. Oh, no. That time period sucked. (laughs) And that sentence was gross. There's there's a reason I haven't delved into any of the slavery-related topics I found. Yeah. It's not great. Does not make for a... Does not make for jokes. No. No jokes to be had. So Tommy was also taking care of other young relatives at the time, and Henrietta shared a room with her first cousin, David Lax, who would eventually become her husband after they had two kids. I mean, that's kind of what happened back in that time. So what time period is this taking place in? Uh nineteen twenty-four. So it was nineteen thirty-four by the time they had kids. She was fourteen. Bowser's it's a little late. For that, but... Yep, but I mean, still poverty, still the South. Yeah. Yep, not great times. Whoops. So Henrietta and David would grow up and move to Maryland, where David would work at a steel mill. Interesting that your stuff was about (laughs) ironworks and steel mills. By Um, that time, well, no, not necessarily by that time. Well, maybe in Maryland they were unionized at that point. So after earning enough money and being gifted some money from one of his good friends who was headed off to World War II... David and Henrietta would have, would buy a nice house and have three more children. In 1950, before the birth of her last child, Henrietta described having a knot in her womb when she discovered that she was pregnant 
This seemed to be the answer to her mystery. Huh. But after the child was born, she still had this knot, as she called it, and decided to go to Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital. By the way, Johns Hopkins <laughs> is very hard to say. Why did you put an S? I know there's a, probably a very good reason, but Johns Hopkins is tough. I actually said It's probably someone's name. <laughs> Johns? Apparently. I don't know. Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital in Baltimore. Uh, Dr. Howard Jones examined her and discovered a mass on her cervix that was large, purple, and hemorrhaged at the gentlest touch. He was incredibly concerned because this was not noted during her records when she gave birth. So either the physicians had missed this or it had grown to that size in a very short time. Yikes. A little background on Dr. Howard Jones. On Dr. Howard Jones. He was one of the first reproductive medicine specialists ever, along with his wife, Georgiana. They specialized in gynecological medicine and were responsible for the birth of the first in vitro fertilization, along with the first doctors to perform a sex reassignment surgery. Oh, wow. So big shout out to these guys who are probably some of the more important people in recent medicine. All right, cool. Yeah. Anyways, Dr. Jones determined that the mass was cervical cancer and Henrietta was treated with radium tube inserts, which is where they put radium tubes as close to the affected area as possible as a form of therapy. After a few days in the hospital, she was discharged and asked to come back for further x-rays soon to monitor the progress. She came back for many treatments and checkups, but eventually it caught up to her. She admitted herself on August 8th with extreme abdominal pain and died on October 4th of 1951. An autopsy revealed that the cancer had metastasized over her entire body. Yikes. Yep. But this isn't the end of Henrietta's story. During her many checkups, someone decided to take a sample of her good tissue and her cancerous tissue and keep it. This was done without her consent Oops. or knowledge. Uh, and it was largely practiced to do this at the time. Like, you didn't really get consent from people to keep biological matter. There were even like court cases that were like, once your matter has been removed, it's no longer Longer. yours. Gotcha. So it's not like this was crazy, but also she was female and black in a not great time period. Yeah. So there's been a lot of controversy surrounding issues like this. I think the name sounded familiar. I think I know it. Pretty sure what's going on. Okay. I only have a very vessel. Enlighten me. So the lack of consent ended up having lasting implications. The first was in 1970 when people started soliciting the rest of Henrietta's lineage for blood samples for research that were, and they were not told why. And again, in 1975, when at a dinner party, some of Henrietta's family discovered that there was something called Hella cells that were still being used to this day for research. Hella being an abbreviation of Henrietta Lacks, H-E-L-A. Oh, okay. So this is when the family discovered that the cells had been taken from Henrietta and weren't just used once or twice. Henrietta's cells were called immortal. Oh. Generally speaking, cells tend to die off in a lab setting, not replicating past a few generations. Henrietta's cells, however, were living multiple generations before the prior generations died. Oh, So they had an abundance of her cells. Wow. They just kept uh, coming. Yep. Uh, Hella cells were the first ever line of cells we kept. Wow. There are more. Oh, okay. Um, The first noted use of Hella cells was by a a doctor named Jonas Salk. Jonas took the Hella cells that he acquired... Um, the hella cells were getting passed around everywhere. Because remember, we we started off... Like, she died in 51. And this is, like... Or 
the family found out in like 75. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of time of her cells being yeah. used for research before anyone knew who was related to her knew. Or tried to stop it. <laughs> right. Um, so Jonas created the world's first uh, cell production factory using oh. her cells. Yep. And this factory was then used for a project that he was working on, which in 1955 became the first working polio van in America. Oh! Yep. Also in 1955, Hella cells became the first ever successfully cloned human cells. Okay. These cells got around a lot. Yeah, apparently. Yep. Um, since then, her cells have been mailed around the world for research involving cancers, AIDS, gene therapy, vaccines, and so much more. In... 2010, the New York Times wrote an article called Eternal Life, where they reported that over 50 million metric tons, metric tons of Hella cells have been produced. Oh my goodness. And have been the leading portion of research for nearly 11,000 medical patents. Oh my gosh. Claiming the cells that they were like the major part of why the research was. Wow. So for reference, 50 million metric tons is 110 billion pounds. <laughs> or as the Microsoft calculator wanted to tell me, oh, no. 55,556 whales. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the best part, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know why Microsoft calculator does this, but it has this little suggestion thing at the bottom now where pretty much anything you tell it to convert tries to relate it to something else. And in this case, it was whales. Whales. So there are 55,556, so close to all fives. Whales. <laughs> whales that are <laughs> essentially just uh, Henrietta Lacks. <laughs> That's how many Henrietta Lacks there are. Jeez. And that was in 2010. Oh, wow. So there's probably more now. <laughs> we have another decade of research that is being done with these cells. Wow. Yeah. I really want to make a joke about Hello Dolly and whales, but I won't. What? <laughs> in Hello Dolly, there's a recurring um, joke about wanting to see the whale at Barnum's Museum. Ah, I, I watched that with you, and I, for some reason, don't remember it. I don't know if it was in the movie. It's okay. in, the, in the play, though, okay. which I've now seen. Too many times. We'll leave it at that. Three. Three. I've seen it three times. Twice with Bernadette Peters. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Hella cells are also notorious in labs. They have been found to contaminate somewhere between 10 and 20% of all immortal cell lines. Wait, so like they're getting in the other cell lines? In the other immortal cell lines. Probably not intentionally either. Not intentionally. <laughs> so they just kind of like sneak their way over? Somehow. Wow. Yeah, um, that is actually the reason why um, the people in 1970s and 1975 started contacting the the Lax family mm. because they were trying to figure out what was making the cells do this and they wanted to see if there was other people in the lineage that would be willing to donate cells oh, okay. so that they can better study the cells because yeah. at this point there are hundreds of thousands probably millions of generations of Hella cells changing over time mm -hmm. so they were hoping that having actual descendants mm -hmm. would help them isolate Hella cells and contaminated real cell lines. Because <laughs> like Wow, just getting all up and everywhere. Yes. Um, so the Baltimore City paper called her Wonder Woman and the unwitting heroine of modern medicine. Wow. And if you want to know more about Henrietta Lacks, Rebecca Skloot, what a name. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Hopefully you don't listen. <laughs> Rebecca Skloot wrote a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which was also turned into an HBO film of yes. the same name yep. in 2017. Yep. That's what I was thinking of. I remember being like, I think there was a movie. <laughs> yes. Um, there's also a 1997 documentary called The Way of All Flesh by Adam Curtis that that's, talks about the significance of hella cells in modern medicine. That's not so great a name. No, it's not I the best I don't like that name. <laughs> And uh, lastly, there is a charity setup that actually aids people who have made important contributions to scientific research without personally benefiting from the contributions. Mostly people who didn't know, like it was done without their knowledge or mm -hmm. consent. And what is the... Uh, they donate grants and scholarships to oh. whatever, whatever those people need. They try and help them out because they helped human evolution, right. so society, medicine forever. So is it for the families of those people? Yeah, so the people who have primarily received the scholarships um, and grants to this day have been relatives of oh, okay. Henrietta Lacks. Oh, neat. Because all of them are benefiting from this, and also all of them are kind of being hurt by this. Yeah. Um, because in 2013, they published the Hella G public. Oh. Which is that's... basically the medical records of oh. all of her descendants that's... as well. Yeah, that's not great. But I mean, like, it's done because of how important the contribution her genome has been. Yeah, but that's but... a breach of privacy mm. of many descendants. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah. And that's no, no one was ever asked. It... No one gave permission. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I would never give permission for my medical record to be published. Yep. And mine's pretty darn benign, so... Yeah. <laughs> Or so you think. I mean, this well, <laughs> was a tobacco farmer in the early 1900s who literally changed the world after I'm, her death. I'm fairly confident mine is benign. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough family with, like, medical issues where I think if there was anything phantasmic in our genome, it would have been discovered already. <laughs> so, anyways, the foundation is just called the Henrietta Lacks Foundation. You can look them up on Char Charity Navigator or GuideStar, as you should do all charities. Yes. Um, look them up before you donate. Yes. Uh, something that not a lot of people are willing to say is that nonprofits are just business. Like, a lot of them. Whoever you're donating to, you're most likely filling the pockets of some multimillionaire rather yeah. than the actual stuff the charities are. Yeah, look into where their operating costs go. Before. Yeah, and operating costs of just saying, like, oh, like, this is operating cost to run the business. Then you go, you can get their tax information. It's a, called a Form 990. And those are on websites like Charity Now or GuideStar. Um, and the, their Form 990 has to lose all of the, or top X amount of people that make over 100 a year based on a charity. And you would be disgusted to learn how many charities are just straight. Um, so, but anyways, uh, I, I, I looked them up on Charity Navigator and it doesn't look like they make much money at all, probably because oh. it's so not known. Yeah. Like, I, the latest tax information I saw from them was 2011. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like they're still operating. I just wasn't able to find more tax records. I wonder if it's... I wonder if it's um, gone up since the the book in the I don't like know. Like even more recent years. I wonder if like. Well, I tried to find their taxes yeah. and couldn't. So are they? Is the 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 charity navigator thing like like if we if we were to go and look, would it be like 2018 or would it be farther behind? Usually, usually it's a year behind. Oh, okay. Um, because the taxes get made public a year after they've been submitted. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um. So 
they're behind on taxes or websites have been behind on updating their taxes. I don't know. But when I looked, they only pulled in about $50,000 in 2011 mm -hmm. and 3000 of those dollars were used for quote unquote operating costs, which is a tiny percentage. Yeah, that's, that's great a small for most, percentage. Yeah, for most charities, that's great. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, the charity is run by Rebecca Skloot, the person who wrote the book. Oh, neat. <laughs> yep. And uh, as well as Dr. Roland Patillo, um, who is the first African-American student of a Dr. George Gay, who was the first person to study hella cells. Oh, neat. Yep. Um, and it's, I think, assumed that one of his um, one of his assistants is probably the person who gathered the cells probably, from yeah. he uh, Henrietta. That would make sense. Yeah, and then there's many other people involved with the charity are in the fields of scientific writing, uh, general science, consent law, and a lot of more. It, it seems like a pretty... Yeah, nice. Yeah. So uh, that's my story about Immortal Cells of Henrietta Lacks. Neat. Yeah. Um, and I guess also, since we were talking about charities and stuff, uh, my family runs a charity called Andrew's Helpful Hands, and uh, when you'll most likely be hearing this September 30th is the last day of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, which is September. Yeah. Um, check us out. You can find us also on Charity Night Star. Um, yeah. And we have a website, andrewshelpfulhands.com. Yeah. So anyways, now it's time for our call to action. Yes. So you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find us on Patreon at halfwitpod at gmail.com. If you're feeling super nice, I know we get so much donations from Patreon. Maybe, <laughs> maybe instead of donating to Patreon, if this was the time you were thinking you were going to do that, instead go to either the uh, Henrietta Lacks Foundation and donate to them or visit Andrew Selfful Hands for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Um, yeah. You can just go to andrewselfullhands.com forward slash donate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it says right on there that anything that comes through our donation portal is 100% dedicated into our family. So you know that your donation is not overhead cut. And um, one of the really nice things about Andrew's Helpful Hands is that they, um, it's Massachusetts-based, and they help pay for um, home costs, so like mortgage, rent, that kind of thing, while kids with cancer are going through bone marrow transplant. Um, so it's a, really, it's a really great way to help people who with something that's so basic, like having a place to live. Yeah. So. And to this day, we've helped over 50 families pay. And also, we currently have no one on payroll. We used to have someone on payroll for yeah, a little bit. Yep. We have no one on payroll. Um, and you can visit our website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that one. Visit our website at halfwit-history.com. Halfwit and as always, thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. Yeah. You can find him on SoundCloud, and his link is in our show description, our show notes. Yes. Um, also, one last shout out is for a review that we got from K Roby T. Um, says it's a great show. They're loving the podcast and can't wait to binge it more. So th thanks for following. Thanks for rating us. And also, I know that K Roby T has her own podcast. Yes. Called the History Cash Podcast, and we started listening to it, and we're having a really fun time listening to that yeah. as well. So check her out. All right. So is it fun fact time? I think it is. Woohoo! When's your fun fact? Uh, 1889. You are first. No, oh, no. All right. Okay, so on October 6, 1889, the Moulin Rouge opens in Paris. Of course. <laughs> the actual building place, like the actual place, not the movie. The 2001 movie is related, but not what I'm talking about. Um, 
but yeah, so the place that spawned a movie and a musical. That Kylie loves. That I am obsessed with. It's awful. It's so bad. <laughs> if it's a musical, Kylie's obsessed with it. Well, let's be honest. You're not wrong. <laughs> What's your fun fact? All right. So on October 6th of 1945, I was going with the kind of spooky still. Um, the tavern owner, Bill Billy Goat Sanus, <laughs> buys, his, buys a seat for himself and his goat. For game four of the Baseball World Series and is escorted out because his goat is too smelly. Oh! <laughs> yep. And as he's being escorted out, he says something along the lines of a curse, spooky. Oh. Uh, that the Chicago Cubs shall never win a game again. And that stayed true for 108 years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Until 2016, <laughs> where Back to the Future correctly predicted that the Cubs would win the World Series. Oh, wow. I didn't know that part. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. So in the seven, I think it was the 70s or 80s is when that Back to the Future was out. I forget the exact year. But yeah. they, they when they went into the future, yeah. they predicted that the Chicago Cubs won the World Series in 2016. So, pff, wow. And they did. Surprise. <laughs> Anyways. I can't believe the curse was by a stink was from a stinky goat. It was from a stinky goat, <laughs> a tavern owner who had a stinky goat named Murphy. Oh. Actually, there was another funny tidbit that I picked up, which was one of the um, one of the people that beat them in a World Series at some point. They had a pit baseman or something that was named Murphy, who ended up scoring a lot of points. Oh on my them. gosh! <laughs> and the they were quoted as saying, "This isn't the only Murphy that's kept you out of the World Series." <laughs> Because the goat's name was Murphy that they were cursed with. <laughs> That's great. I like it. <laughs> so as always, I'm your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope to see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>